true story, true story. Fifth century, a man named Arrhenius. Uh, Arrhenius decided that he wanted to do all that he could uh, to lead a, a holy life before God. And for him, uh, this man who uh, grew up there in, in Egypt, he felt like that meant for him to lead a holy life before God. It meant he, he, for him, he felt like he just needed to leave all the trappings of Egyptian society behind and go out into the desert and live an austere, ascetic, monastic style uh, life. From time to time, however, uh, Arrhenius was known to still, despite all of that, go and walk the streets of the, the, the great city of Alexandria and go and visit the bazaars and, and just mill around and look around. And his followers were somewhat troubled by what their great teacher was doing. And so they asked him, Arrhenius, why is this that you live this one lifestyle? You're pursuing God in this one particular way, leaving all these things behind you. At the same time, you go and you mingle in the streets in these bazaars of of Alexandria, and he said, I do this because it allows my heart time to rejoice over all that I do not need. Now, I don't tell you that story because I think we should all start living in that field or find a dry, arid place to pursue God. That's not my point. I do tell you that because I think it raises a question. What would it take? What would it take for you and I to create such a contentment in our the, the depths of our souls, such that as we look around in the Alexandria of today, so to speak, we then would look and be able to be satisfied and rejoice over all that we really, really don't need? What would it take? Let's prepare our hearts for worship. Stacy Cross. Stacy is uh, the what we call the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt. Now, let me explain just for a moment what that means. Some of you that those are I just threw a few foreign words there at you. Um, you've heard me refer to the fact that this church is a part of a larger movement of churches, a part of the Nashville Presbytery, a gathering of churches, which is a part of a larger denomination called the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. Of that denomination, there is a ministry, the, um, the campus ministry, the outreach to college students all across the nation, one of which is at Vanderbilt. And Stacy Croft is the campus minister there at Vanderbilt. We recognize that given what he's doing there, given the fact that he's, if you will, on the front lines um, uh, in a mission field uh, where goodness, where do you begin in terms of the significance of that mission field when you consider that generation is receiving training, that crucial stage in the life of hundreds, in the case of Vanderbilt, thousands in the case of Vanderbilt, really, uh, receiving training, going off to become the leaders, future leaders of this nation and around the world. And this ministry has the opportunity, and that intersecting in the lives of those folks at that time and that place to bring the gospel. And, and uh, the, the biblical world and life view and its impact and implications for them even now and for the rest of their lives. With all that in mind, we are delighted then to prayerfully and financially partner with guys like Stacy at Vanderbilt. And we're also delighted when the opportunity comes, when his busy schedule allows him to come all the way up 
to Clarksville and uh, spend time with us. So, Stacy, come on up. Well, it's great to see you all again. Whoa, gosh, that's powerful. Um, it's great to see you all again. This is actually my second time to come and uh, be with you, and I don't know who was here last time and who wasn't, but um, I'm so thankful to be here. It's it's always a joy for me to come preach at a church, um, whether it's in Clarksville or in Nashville or wherever it may be, and to see your faces, because it, it's encouraging to me to know, I may not even really know your names, but I do know that you're here worshiping the Lord Jesus, and uh, you're in uh, your city, and you're infecting the city with the gospel, uh, wherever you are. And we share that. That's the thing that we share that I think is so beautiful about what we're you know, singing about, and what we're reading about, and what we come to this building for is that we have community. Um, even as I'm a stranger to you, uh, we share the deepest thing that, um, that we could ever share, uh, Jesus. And that is a wonderful thing. And, and what else I know that we share that I'm so thankful that Richard reminded me of is, is our mess. <laughs> You and I bring our mess into this place this morning. Uh, we bring our mess wherever it is, whether it's in our marriages, our jobs, um, our own souls, uh, our own minds. Whatever pain, whatever mess it is, you bring it here. Even if you don't feel like you are a mess, you are a mess. <laughs> Let me encourage you with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'll ask me back after that. Huh? Um, but... I'm really thankful to be here with you, and I'm excited to, uh, to share my mess with you and you with me and uh, look at God's Word and ask for His grace to change us and to make us more and more like Christ. So I'm, let me read from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. We're going to look at that primarily, um, and we'll look at a couple other verses, and then, uh, then I'll pray for us after that. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. This is Paul. He's writing to a church in Philippi. Uh, one of the churches, if not the church, that he dearly loved and had a, a deep connection with. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let me pray real quick for our hearts. Father, these words, maybe even familiar words to us, especially uh, the, the phrase and verse of, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, through Jesus. And Lord, even though that it may be familiar, even though it may not be familiar at all, Lord, let this word of yours cut to the quick. Cut us deep, Lord. We come here uh, with so much. But, Lord, we know and we sing and we, we pray and hope that you are the one that deals with our mess. You're the one that knows that we are not satisfied people. That we are discontent, that we look everywhere else, to try and find some sort of satisfaction, some sort of uh, way to, to quench our thirst and our need and our hunger, and yet, Lord, you know that we wander. 
just as we even sang before. Bring us back to yourself. Let your word pierce us and yet encourage us. Drive us to the cross and let us leave here with confidence in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. You know, I recently uh, read an article um, called Why I Hate Beauty. Kind of an interesting article by a publicist in L.A. And it's so interesting that this man, Michael Levine, out in L.A., found that he just got to be, in the beauty capital of the world, got to be just so just unenthused by what was around him. That, in fact, he, he saw it, and one of the things that he says is, although I'm a successful red-blooded American male, it is beauty alone that is keeping me single and lonely. That he's seen so much beauty, so much uh, just extravagance around him that it's just jaded him. In fact, he, and he writes an article, Why I Hate Beauty, Why He Absolutely Hates It. And he talks about how men and women are absolutely barraged with, with all the beauty conscious, body conscious things that surround them, especially in L.A., but we know it's not just in L.A. It's in our, it's in, you know, in our homes. It's around us all the time. Every magazine, every uh, movie at, at Blockbuster, everywhere around us, we're barraged with it. But he, it's interesting that this man is out there and doing this, and he even talks about the way women see themselves as is they, it, it, women who are surrounded by, he says, um, other attractive women, whether in the flesh or in films or in ph- uh, photographs, they, they see themselves as less. They be- begin to look at, and you know this feeling, you begin to look at these images, look at what is out there, and you see yourself as less. And not only just the women, but the men, they find themselves uh, le- yearning for superficial beauty instead of the real thing, instead of real love and real women. This is just... a a, a publicist in L.A. making this observation. Like, interesting. So much so that he says this, talking about the harmful effects of it and how it's really affected him. My exposure to extreme beauty is ruining my capacity to love the ordinarily beautiful women of the real world. Women who are more likely to meet my needs for deep connection and partnership of the soul. In fact, He's so jaded by this beauty consciousness that he is, hates even living in L.A. He even says that he can't believe that he ever moved to L.A. to begin with to become a publicist. It's, it's destroyed him that much. And you see, beauty was destroyed for this man. Beauty was absolutely destroyed for him. And for the countless women and men, like you and me, beauty gets destroyed. Because what? what? What are they doing? What was the problem with Michael and the problem with us is that we look to that object to satisfy a need that we think it will. So ultimately, we're putting all our eggs into that, thinking that if we look to that kind of beauty, it'll satisfy our deepest desires. But what happens? We end up confusing the, absolute, the object with, what, with the real thing. The thing that can truly satisfy us. And so we end up disappointed. We end up hating, like Michael Levine, hating the very thing that we thought would satisfy us. And it's not just beauty, it's everything we do. That's what discontent does. That's what happens to us when we look beyond to things that we think will fill that need for us and don't. And we end up hating those things. And we don't end up hating them They end up ruining us. They end up destroying us. Because we think that they are what? 
the ultimate. We sang a song a minute ago. It was interesting. It talked about the Creator. God was not created. But what we're doing with this is we're worshiping what? The creation rather than the Creator. And so everything gets thrown out of whack. The whole system gets destroyed because we get confused. Beauty's not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it's a signpost to something more. And what we do, typically, as we see this, is first need to understand, as you may have the outline there, is that is contrast to culture. When Paul is talking here to the Philippians, it, it, there's a lot here that we may not necessarily see that's going on. He's talking into their culture about what's going on. Because Philippi was a Roman city, right? And when he says actually the word contentment, he means independence of external circumstances. But for them, if they heard, when they heard that, the philosophy of the day was stoicism. You know, you probably hear that phrase, oh, he or she is such a stoic. What that means is it's a certain kind of philosophy that believed that they had that idea, they had that understanding that, okay, this thing that I think will satisfy me is going to disappoint me every time. So what the stoics did is they removed what? The desires. So that's why when you say, oh, he or she is such a stoic, they just have no emotion, they're expressionless, is because they're removing the emotion, they're removing the desires. And that way, they can handle everything that's going on. But what happens with that? That's the problem. The problem is not our desires. <laughs> it's what our desires are pursuing. We are, you and I are meant to have desires. The desire is not the problem. It's what has tainted our desires. It's what we pursue after to fill those desires. And so what happens? You become apathetic. You become cynical to life. The life and joy is sucked out. Because you keep going after these things and it won't satisfy. It's what the desires are producing. And that's what they were thinking. And Paul is moving in that direction. You can kind of think with me that the Philippians are reading that and going, oh, was Paul talking about being a stoic? Okay, we just need to like work on our desires? Well, let's look at this from maybe our perspective. Different culture than Rome, but kind of similar. What we do in our culture is go to the other extreme, right? We pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue until we can be so filled and we just get bored with it. We have to be, be constantly entertained. We're always looking for the next thrill. Always looking for the next thing because we just get bored. We get numb. We're always looking for something to set, like, like a drug. In fact, there's a, a, a quote, it may be in y'all's bulletin, by uh, Richard Winter, who writes in our Denominations magazine uh, a great article on this. He says, still bored in a culture of entertainment. This is so us. Wait till you hear this. He says, we are bored. Despite living in remarkable times, just as a drug user develops a tolerance and needs larger doses to achieve the same effect, so we too have developed a tolerance to amazing events and perhaps to entertainment. Listen to what he quotes Reader's Digest here, who says this, How to cope with boredom. Despite its extraordinary, extraordinary variety of diversions and resources, its frenzy for spectacles, and its feverish pursuit of entertainment, America is bored. The abundance of efforts made in the United States to counter boredom have defeated themselves. This is Reader's Digest. 
And boredom has become the disease of our time. That is so true. I know it's true because that's my heart. (laughs) And that's yours. We pursue those things over and over. If you are the kind of person, and I know a lot of you are, if not all of you, that are always looking for the next thing. Gosh, if I can just get to Friday for the weekend. If I can just get to summer, school will be out. If I can just get to... If I can just get to... You're a discontented person. We are. Because we're always looking for something else. We're always looking for something else to satisfy. If you're the kind of person that can't stop, that when you stop for a moment, you, you get that kind of panicky feeling, so you have to fill your time with everything else around you, even if it's getting up and cleaning your desk or getting up and arranging something, you constantly have to be moving, or you can't stand the silence just for a moment because it arises that panicky feeling in you. You're discontent. You and I are discontent. And we have to look and see, okay, what, what is that in our hearts? Where is that in our lives? Even the Christian cultures, there's a passage here, I, I, the, I quoted it, I have it written in the uh, outline, first from 1 Timothy 6, 3-10, through 10, and it talks, Paul is talking to the Christian culture about this problem. It's not just out there, it's in here. Paul talks to Timothy about these men, possibly elders of the church, who are puffed up and using these things for godliness. There's a movement in Christianity, it's getting more and more more popular, called the health and wealth gospel. Now, they probably wouldn't say that to you, but that's a very common way to look at it. If you hear me for a second, you'll, you'll hear what it sounds like. It's the thought of, Okay, if I have enough faith, if I trust God enough, if I give Him more, then I'll get that house I want. I'll get that job I want. I'll get that wife. I'll get that child. I'll get that school. I'll get. He'll give you. So we begin to look at God and say, okay, here, God, I'm going to give you my faith, and in exchange for the faith, you're going to give me good stuff. And that's actually a very... It's not, again, it's not just with certain... Christian movements that do that, we do that ourselves a lot. We kind of fleece God. We kind of say, God, okay, and I'll let you in a little of my own heart. Um, for a long time, my wife and I have struggled with infertility. Um, and it's been a major struggle for us. It's been a heartache. Uh, in fact, this morning, even driving here, my, I've just been wrestling with it. And one of the things that I have been tempted to do is to constantly think, okay, how can I pray differently? How can I have more faith? Do I, have, do I not have enough faith? What am I not doing, God, for you to give my wife and I children? You see, it's not just certain movements. It's in all of us. It's all of our hearts. We're all that way. And we all treat God like a a rabbit's foot or Santa Claus. And we miss the fact that we want what we we don't want God. And and Richard prayed this beautifully. It's not that we want God. We want the things He can give us. 
We want the stuff. Because we think, again, just like Michael Levine did, that we will be satisfied by it. And it's not only contrary to culture, but it's contrary to our comfort. Because we have to know the source. Let's push this a little deeper than just the external stuff. Let's push it a little deeper. It's, we have to know the source of contentment. Because Paul is speaking at first about material needs, but as you read on, as he talks to the Philippians about his contentment, about what he has, he really is not talking about material things, but his very being. He's talking about within. He's not talking about just without. He's talking about within. That whatever situation, he says, I am to be content. And you know what's even cooler about that? Paul says twice, he says, I have what? Learned. Paul says, I have learned. This is the Apostle Paul, mind you, okay? We often look at it and go, Paul's got it all together. Okay, if I could be like Paul, if I could just be a little more like Paul, I'd be doing all right. Paul is saying, I have learned. You know why he's saying, I have learned? Because he knows his own tendency to conceit, and he knows his own tendency to covetousness. In Romans 7, if you ever read Romans 7, the entire chapter is about him wrestling with his own sin. You might even want to jot that down and read it later. It is so encouraging (laughs) to read the Apostle Paul talking about his sin and wrestling with the fact that he covets everything. That's why he's saying he has learned. And I want to ask you, moving from the external to the internal, Do you know your discontent? Do you really know it? Are you really aware of it? Have you really seen in your life, in your heart, the landscape of your heart? Have you taken inventory of where you really pursue things that you think will satisfy and leave you wanting and ruin you? Because you and I have to learn not just content, but where we are discontent. When he says the secret here, he says, I've learned the secret, right, of facing plenty and hunger. Secret there means something that's desired but not easily found. It's an ache in our hearts. It's that deep longing in us to find some satisfaction. Mark Twain put it this way. I think he put it very well. He said, you don't know quite what it is you want, but but it just fairly makes your heart ache. You want it so. You don't know what it is, but it makes your heart ache enough that you want it so. So true. It's that feeling you get of being so close to something that is powerful and wonderful. It's like when you go out to the mountains, or you go out and spend some time in one of your favorite places, or listening to your favorite music, or doing those kind of things, and you're so close to something so powerful and so wonderful, but you just can't grasp it. It's that feeling. That's the discontent. That's the sign of saying, look, this is not, <laughs> this is not the end in itself. There's something greater. And the secret is, no matter how content I feel, I still still feel like what I'm content with is pointing beyond itself. There's something beyond it. 
My old pastor, Skip Ryan, said this, and I love the way he put this. He said, whenever I find a perishable bliss, a good meal, a good job, or a lovely sunset, or a new friend, even as I'm enjoying that thing and am content by it, listen to this, I realize that it's stimulating me on to a desire that it itself cannot fulfill in me. It's stimulating me to something more, to something beyond itself. It's pushing me further. And yet what we do is we find contentment in those things there. We think that they will satisfy us. Y'all, even driving here, (laughs) here's something funny. I got a call from one of my friends who has left his um, uh, 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 whitewater kayak in my garage. And his, he called me to say, well, the guy that left it there wants it back. And he said, well, I'd be happy to sell it. And so here I'm on the phone like bargaining <laughs> about whether, how to buy this whitewater kayak because I'd really love it. So just like you, I've entered into this building with other things clicking on my brain <laughs> that I think will provide some sort of satisfaction. And yet, if I stop there, if I stop at the whitewater kayak, (laughs) I will find myself in error, restless, ruined. As as St. Augustine said, my sin was that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but where? In myself. And that led me to pain, confusion, and error. That's where it all begins. It's not just out there. It's in here. You and I have to know the discontent. We have to know what's out there that tempts us and where it comes from within us. And what is the solution? What is the sol- If the Apostle Paul is, is sitting there grappling with that, he's wrestling with, oh gosh, I'm so discontent. I, this is something he's had to learn. How do we learn that? How do we learn that? What what do we do? We have to look where? It can't come from within. It has to look. We have to look outside of ourselves. Guys, you and I have got to understand that the answer does not lie within. The answer, the problem is within. And the only way that the problem within can be changed is by the answer without. We have to look beyond ourselves to Christ. We have to look beyond ourselves. It's in Jesus. Contentment is in Christ. You know, I love that verse that's here. And you've probably heard it a thousand times, maybe read it. It says in verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is one of the most misunderstood verses, (laughs) I think, around. When I go to the YMCA and I work out in in Nashville, um, there's this big sign that has that verse below it and shows some guy just totally ripped, you know, (laughs) lifting some weights. And, I mean, I've seen it before that, but it's just every time I see it, I just kind of like, gosh. Because it's just so misunderstood. And we think that. We think that, oh, yeah, I can do all things. You know, we're going back to the... I'll just look this way. I'll be this way. I'll get this thing. I'll do that thing. But really what that verse is saying is a poster of a complete weakling. (laughs) 
who can't even lift five pounds off the floor and might not ever be able to, will he be content with that? Will he be satisfied with that? Will you and I be satisfied, content? As Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not just in what he says, plenty and in want. Abundance and in need. That he has learned that contentment doesn't hang on those things. It has to come outside. It has to look in the wealth and relationship we have in Jesus. Another quote that I just love from William Shakespeare, King Henry VI, he says, My crown is in my heart, not on my head, not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content. The crown that we have when we are in Christ is within. It is more precious, more valuable, than anything that we think could satisfy us outside. Than anything. So much so that when, in the last verse that I put in your bulletin, it says in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Paul, or whoever is the author of Hebrews, again says that this about contentment. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, quoting, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How in the world, how in the world can the author of Hebrews say, what can man do to me? If you're like me, you're always worried about what man can do to you. (laughs) What does this person think of me? What do these people think of my sermon? What do they think of, you know, I mean, you're always worried about that. How can you live this way? It's the verse before that. Amazing. He's talking about money and contentment. And what does he say is the answer? He says, and be content with what you have and what do you and I have? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's God. It's Jesus. He is the gift. He is the one. The one outside of you and I that brings contentment. He is the one we are to look to. He is the one that grounds us in this life. And our desires make sense that we can love Him, we can serve and worship the Creator, and then go out and enjoy creation as we should. Because it makes sense. Because we're not confusing the Creator with creation. And God has grounded us in the person of Jesus. Because He is the one that satisfies.